0: That's good news for me. That's good news for you this morning that we have a high priest who's made a way. And we're gonna continue looking at that high priest and the work that he's done on our behalf. Uh, and so my hope is that you would be encouraged. And, and if you're here this morning and you you don't know what it means to know Jesus as your high priest, to, to know that a way has been made for you to have a relationship with the God who made you, if, if that's you, my hope is that that this, this word, that these Verses would awaken you, and that God, through His Word, by His Spirit, would call you to Himself. And so that's 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 our hope. Um, and so so we are we are expectant um, that God's going to work through this time, through this sermon, uh, not because I'm a good preacher, but because God's Word is powerful. Um, so we're we're going to look in Hebrews chapter nine is where we're going to be. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter nine. We do have some on that back table there, the the the, the aqua paper backs, and if you need a Bible, you are welcome to have one of those. Uh, but we're going to be looking specifically at verses fifteen through twenty-two uh, in Hebrews chapter nine. But but last week we began working through the the second half of Hebrews chapter nine, which really runs from verse eleven all the way down through the end of chapter nine, which is verse twenty-eight. And last week we started by looking at verses eleven through fourteen. And the focus was on the blood of Christ. That, that was the focus, the blood of this new covenant. And that focus is going to continue into this week's passage and then also into next week. So all of the second half of Hebrews chapter 9 is on the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant. And this isn't, this isn't original to the author of Hebrews. And so if, you're, if you've grown up in church, you, you've probably heard when, when, whenever a church, typically when they observe communion or they take the Lord's Supper, there's a quotation from Jesus himself. So all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record Jesus in the upper room when when he has all of his disciples. He's going to be crucified the next day, and he has them together, and he he breaks bread, and he says, this bread is my body, and then they eat, and then he, he takes the cup, and he says, and this I'll read from Luke 22, he took the cup after they had eaten, and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so the blood of Jesus, which is all wrapped up in and associated with his death, is central to this new covenant. And that's what what the author of Hebrews is trying to make clear, that the blood of Jesus, the the shedding of his blood, the death, is what has established the new covenant. His death is what brought about the, the inauguration of this new covenant. His death has opened the way to God in a way that the old covenant never could. And so this new covenant has come about through the work of Christ. And so that's what we'll look at here in verses 15 through 22, his role as the mediator of the new covenant. Let's let's read this passage. I'll begin reading in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9, and I'll read just through verse 22. So Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, For when every, every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he, that is Moses, sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, worship. indeed, under the law, or under the first covenant, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We have a new covenant mediator who has died and opened the way, which means if Christ hadn't died, there would be no new covenant. No, no need for, for the readers, the first readers of Hebrews, to abandon the old. But the fact that Christ has died There is a new covenant, and there is no reason to seek to relate to God any other way except through Jesus and this new covenant. Well, let me pray for us, and then we'll work through these verses. Now, Father, I pray this morning that you would show us our need uh, to be nourished and sustained by the bread of life. Would you show us our need for Christ this morning, our new covenant mediator? I pray that you would nourish us your people with your word would you strengthen our faith would you sustain our hope would you compel us to love those that you've placed around us we come to you I come to you recognizing that there's nowhere else for us to go for you and you alone have words of eternal life and so we look to you expectantly this morning we want to hear from you in your word That's in christ's name we pray amen well our outline is is very simple there's there's three points and so we'll work through these one at a time. So we'll, we'll see the main point. And again, this is, this is the, the summary sentence of this passage. In verse 15, we'll see the new covenant mediator. And so this passage works is 15 is like the summary, and then he works it out in the next two sections. So first point is the new covenant mediator. That's there in verse 15. And then, then he'll highlight the significance of death. in verses 16 and 17 will show the significance of death in general as it relates to to a will or a legal agreement. And then finally, the the largest section is covenantal blood. And so he wants to say, well, the old covenant was inaugurated and sustained by the shedding of blood, uh, to make his point. And then we'll we'll stop kind of mid-argument, and then next week he will finish his argument of chapter 9. But those are the three uh, sections that we'll work through this morning. So let's look first there at verse 15, the new covenant mediator. And so as, as we, we work through this passage, we, we remember what came before. So last week in verses 11 through 14, we saw that Christ has entered into the very presence of God by means of his own blood. So that's up in verses 11 through 14. Christ has entered into the very presence. He is the great high priest and he serves as a mediator of the new covenant. And we've seen all throughout Hebrews that, that Jesus in this new covenant is a better covenant. It's superior, it it guarantees better promises, there are better effects, it's it's better all around. And it's because Jesus is better, and the covenant that Jesus has established is better. And it's because of what he's done, most most specifically in his death and resurrection and his ascension, now he's entered into the heavenly places, because of what Jesus has done, he's opened access to God. And He has offered true cleansing. His blood brings about cleansing that is true and deep. That that is far superior to any cleansing that any old covenant blood offered. And so Jesus has accomplished things that no other high priest ever could or no sacrifice ever could. And that's the nature of the new covenant. So verse 15, as we come to the first verse in our section, it begins with the word, therefore, because of all that he's done, because of the access to God, he's opened up because of the cleansing that he's now ensured. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Again, that's his main idea. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. He's accomplished things for his people that no other priest could. He, he's accomplished things that were not possible under, this first, under the first covenant. He died and opened heaven, as it were. Therefore, as a result of what he's done, he's the mediator of a new covenant. And, and notice how verse 15 continues there. He, he's the mediator of a new covenant. And what's the result of this new covenant? So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So he's the mediator of this new covenant, the the better covenant. And the new covenant offers what the old could not do. And it's significant. The promises and its effects. As the mediator of the new covenant, the author says that Jesus offers, or or we could say guarantees, the promised eternal inheritance. The divine purpose, God's, God's idea and purpose in Jesus becoming the mediator of this new covenant is that those who are called might receive something, might receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, what does that mean? Now, that's, the, that's the reason he's the mediator of a new covenant, that, that those who are called might receive this. Well, what is this? What is this promised eternal inheritance? Well, we know that it's, it's an eternal inheritance, so, so the timeline looking forward, right? That, that's helpful in knowing that it, that it never ends. It's something that, that his people will possess forever, but also it's significant to recognize that this language, this inheritance language, it's not foreign to the Bible, the idea of, of the inheritance of God's people. Now, it hasn't been, been been very common here in Hebrews thus far, but it plays a huge role in the life of, of God's people, in the life of Israel. Think about the life of the children of Abraham. The, the inheritance, the promise that God made to Abraham was, was a sustaining promise. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing here, he's connecting the new covenant benefits, the eternal inheritance with the promise of eternal inheritance that was made to Abraham. I think that's why he mentions eternal inheritance. It was the promise of an inheritance that was made to Abraham that sustained Israel. And that's what passed down from generation to generation. We're we're gonna have our inheritance. We're gonna get what God promised. We're gonna get our land. We're gonna get him. And it was Abraham and his offspring that received this promise. And, And we'll find out in Hebrews what we've seen already, but we'll especially see in Hebrews 11 that Abraham never really got his inheritance. He never fully received it. None of his descendants, none of his children, the people of faith never received the promise in full. And they didn't receive it because under the old covenant it couldn't deliver. It couldn't it couldn't it was inadequate to deliver what was promised. Instead there's always going to be a need for a new covenant, for a better covenant. And this new covenant has now come in Jesus. He has ensured, he's guaranteed Notice not simply that the internal promise of inheritance will be received. So when Jesus comes, it's not the promise that's passed down. When Jesus comes, it's the inheritance itself that's received. So when Jesus comes, the inheritance has come. In Christ, the fulfillment of the promise has come. A death has occurred that frees God's people from their transgressions and ensures that they receive the promised eternal inheritance, which at the end of the day, is God himself, which is why this whole, whole point is fellowship with God. It, we get to God now because of what Jesus has done. And we have him now and we'll have him forever. And his point is that it's only through Jesus that these promises, that this inheritance can be received. You can't get God apart from Jesus. He is the mediator. He is the only mediator. The promises to Abraham and to all God's people have been realized in Jesus Not Moses, not Abraham, not Adam, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not the Pope, not yourself, no one else. The promises of God, God himself comes to you only through Jesus Christ. A relationship with him comes through no other means. Jesus or nothing. He's the mediator of a new covenant and he ensures that those who are called might receive it. It's a better covenant. Notice verse 15. Notice how it continues. see, the mediator of a new covenant guaranteeing the reception of the internal inheritance since or because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first. What's the death he's talking about? What death has occurred that redeems them? Whose death is he talking about? It's not, it's not a lamb or a goat. It's the death of Christ. His death is the source of redemption. His death is the price that's been paid. His death, the death of Jesus, has redeemed from transgressions. The new covenant fixes, pays for, redeems the transgressions of the old precisely because payment under the old couldn't do it. Payment under the old could not redeem God's people. Under the new... Through the death of Christ, redemption is possible in a way that was foreign to the Old Covenant. The redemption that has come through Christ is a redemption that can redeem from transgressions. In other words, there's continuity here. There's a connection between the Old and the New. So all the promises made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob are fulfilled for those who belong to Jesus. The, the New comes and replaces or, or takes the place of the Old. But there, the Old still has relevance. There's types and shadows. The, the, there's things about the old that are still relevant to understanding the new. The old function for its appointed time. The old set the stage but the new has come and there's no longer a need for the old which is why the author turns his attention to, to death there in verses 16 and 17. Just saying a death has occurred that redeems from sins and transgressions. He then turns to the significance of death in general and, and the principle of death as it relates to agreement. So look there at verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, four, where a death or where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And now the point of these two verses is, is really quite simple. It's the reason that I've, I've, I've headed this second point, the significance of death. That's the point. That's his only point to make here in verses 16 and 17. The whole point is to highlight the significance of death when it comes to formal or legal agreements. Agreements like a, a last will and testament. Or an agreement like a covenant. So the, word, the Greek word for, for will or for testament, it's the same word, it's the same Greek word. And so some translations will, will translate it will and some translations will translate it covenant. Right? The word can, can be used in both cases and it seems like Likely to me that this author is simply using the word to establish a principle when, when, uh, uh, in, in regards to any legal agreement, whether it's a covenant or a will, and it, he kind of goes back and forth. It doesn't matter which one you're talking about because his point is that legal trans- transactions in order to go into effect require death. That's his point. Verse 16, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So all the benefits of a will are only enacted, only received when the giver of the benefits dies. And so for anyone to redeem the benefits of an inheritance, someone must die. Death must occur. And then upon death, that's when the will takes effect. That's what verse 7 plainly says. For a will takes effect only at death. The significance of death is his point. Death is necessary for a will to take effect. I mean, a common example in our day and time would be that of a last will and testament. When a parent or a family member dies... Most of the time, he or she has, has a will. And that goes into effect when he or she dies. You, you probably put it in a safe or you give it to, to a trusted someone and say, don't lose this. When I die, open the envelope. Sometimes it's very secretive and, and it's a big event when the will is opened. Now, for most of us, it's not a big deal because we don't have lots of money. But if there's lots of money, everyone's concerned about who, who's gonna get the money. But, but it's not until the, the, the person who's leaving the inheritance, not until they're dead, that, that, that the, the will or the benefits are handed out or read. The more money, the more possessions being left behind, the more contentious and volatile the situation can, can become. But the point is, even here in 2021, we, we have an understanding of the principle that, that this agreement, this will, these benefits go into effect only when a person dies. And the author of Hebrews is simply using the, a common understanding to establish the necessity of death. Covenant benefits, like the benefits of a will, are generally granted to those who are covenant members only upon the death of the one making the covenant. And so that's all that's his point, that death is required. And he makes this point because it serves to show why the death of Jesus and the establishment of the new covenant and the benefits of the new covenant was required. Jesus had to die for the new covenant benefits to be poured out. Death was necessary. And so then he turns his attention to our last point, verses 18 through 22, and, he, and he, he highlights the role of death, specifically blood, in the old covenant. So there, verse 18, therefore, because of the significance of death in establishing a will, or in this case a covenant, because of the significance of death, therefore, verse 18, not even the first covenant was inaugurated or was put into effect, put into effect without blood. And so when it, there's, there's association here with blood and death, right? There, if there's blood, it means there's death has occurred. So when he talks about blood and blood and blood, it's, it's all implying that death has occurred. And he's gone to great lengths to show that the death of Christ is what inaugurated the new covenant. But here, he wants us to see that death has always been part of the process, part of the inauguration process, even in the case of the first and so remember, his big argument here that the issue facing his initial readers was the temptation to forsake Christ in the new covenant, to go back to the old, to fall away from Christ, and to return to the Levites and the ritual and ceremonial cleansings. And so, for his immediate audience, what I think he's doing here is he's showing that the new covenant is playing by the same rules, if you will, of the old covenant. If he can show that the rules of the covenant inauguration that were in play under the old. So yeah, when Moses, the same thing happened with Moses. And that's all that Jesus has done is what Moses did. If he can show that there's similarities here and there's continuity, then he can make his point even more convincing. Why in the world would you go back to the old when a new covenant has been established? And so he points to death, specifically to the shedding of blood. So look there at verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. What did he sprinkle them with? He he sprinkled them with with blood, the blood of calves and goats and and mixed with water, and he sprinkled the book and all the people. And what does he say there in verse 20? This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And so he's going back to the giving of the law, the, the first giving of the law with Moses and in the book of Exodus, and, and I, I have written up there Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read it because here we're, we're, we're rewinding all the way back to Exodus to when Moses gives the people the law. That's, that's what he's talking about. And so I want you to hear in Exodus the same thing he's just said in Hebrews 9. So Exodus 24, beginning of verse 3, here's what's recorded. Moses came and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So he's come down the mountain. He tells them everything. And all the people answered with one voice. Imagine this, all the people answered with one voice and they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and Moses sent a young, young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, so this is what he just wrote down, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. It's a covenant, right? This, this is their entering into agreement. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. It's kind of gross, Right? It wouldn't have been gross in that time, but, but this, is, this is the inauguration of the covenant. They've said, they've heard the stipulations. They've heard the law. I said, we're going to do it. And they're sprinkled with, with blood, that, that sacrificial blood that recognizes if we don't keep this, blood must be shed. And so, so, so Moses sprinkles blood on the people, and he says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so they're in Exodus 24. The, the, this is the, the recording of a covenant ceremony, and there's agreement on both parties. All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, they don't, they don't really make good in their promise, do they? They don't make it very long. All the Lord has spoken, they say, we're going to obey. That's the, that's, that's the covenantal agreement. And blood was part of that ceremony. There are burnt offerings and sacrifices, which meant death occurred. Blood means death, and so blood from these sacrifices is sprinkled, sprinkled on the altar, And and he reads from the book of the covenant. He sprinkles the blood on the people. And so blood is shed and sprinkled. And that is the inauguration of the covenant. It's a formal agreement. Death occurred and the covenant was entered into. And the sprinkling of the blood that accompanies that proclamation that validates or inaugurates the covenant. That's, That's why blood was required. Which means that death was necessary for the inauguration or the establishment of the covenant. Even the old covenant. So he's saying blood was shed when Moses and the people entered in. When Moses gave the law and all these, all these sacrifices, all these rituals that you are set on keeping, they were put into place by the shedding of blood. New blood has been shed. Why are you going to go back to the old? That's his point. Blood has been significant in covenantal keeping and making. And so this, this inaugural ceremony the giving of the law, the agreement between God and the Israelites required death because it required the blood to be sprinkled. And it wasn't just the beginning, this ceremony that requires blood. Notice how verse 21 of Hebrews 9 continues. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. So it wasn't just the people in the altar like we read about in Exodus 24. The process of sprinkling blood involves sprinkling the tent and all the vessels used in regular worship. Now, I won't list all the references, but blood was sprinkled on throughout the the regular worship practices of Israel. The altar, the garments of the high priests. It was sprinkled before the tent of meeting. It was sprinkled before the veil of the sanctuary. It was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement when, when that would happen. It was sprinkled on the doorpost of the temple. Blood was part of the initial inauguration of the covenant, but it was also part of the continuation of the covenant. It was always required. Entrance into the covenant and purity within the covenant both required blood. It required the continual shedding of blood, which is why the importance of blood is driven home in the last last statement here in verse 22. Look how he concludes. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so this point, life under the old covenant, maintenance of life and fellowship with God under the old covenant could not happen apart from blood. That, that should be categorically something they recognize. Purification was necessary. Shedding of blood was required. The people recognized, even as they said, we're gonna do it all. We're gonna keep the law. They would, they would immediately be confronted with, we haven't, we haven't kept the law. How can we be fixed? Oh, oh there, there's provisions for that. There's blood, there's there's rituals that that remind me that, that blood must be shed for my disobedience. That that was a category of life under the old. Because of the impurity of the people, because of their inability to keep the law, because of their sins, blood was always everywhere. And that was the whole point of the Day of Atonement. The blood of sacrificed goat was atonement for the people. Their sin required death. Their sin required atonement, redemption, purification. All for the explicit purpose of maintaining fellowship with God. If he was going to dwell among them, there had to be provisions for their sin. And it came through blood, through sacrifice. Death was required because sin was present. And the continual need for blood to be shed. The continual need for animals to be sacrificed was a reminder that forgiveness required death. And so every day, every time, Day of Atonement, you're you're leaving Jerusalem and and you you smell blood and you see blood. you, You ought to be reminded This is necessary because I'm a sinful person. That was the whole point. Death was required even under the first covenant. Year after year, another death was required. Death after death. And that is because without the shedding of blood, without death, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so, under the old, animals were the ones that died, and people were forgiven. The animals died in the place of the people, they were the sin offerings for the people. And so under the old, instead of the people's blood, the animals were offered in their place. The animals suffered the fate that the human being deserved, showing the seriousness of sin and the great cost of forgiveness. Life was required. And the reason he emphasizes this is because the new covenant covenant operates under the same principle. Death is required for forgiveness. But unlike the old, in the new, it's not animals that have shed their blood. Jesus has shed his blood, a death death. Has occurred. And that death, that shedding of blood, unlike the shedding of blood under the old, the death of Christ redeems his people from their sins. And that redemption is, is permanent. Christ has died once for all, never to die again. No further need for blood to be shed because the blood of Christ has been shed once for all. And that sets the stage as he ends there with, with verse 22, as he transitions. His focus is going to be on the singular death of Christ, the one-time nature of this sacrifice, which is what, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. But as we close, I just want to point you to a few points of application from this passage as we think, think about what, what does this mean? How do we apply this? And so there's, just, there's, there's three points. All I have to do with the blood, the blood of Christ, the blood of this new covenant. And so first, the blood and the gospel. And so, and so as we look, this is not unique to this passage. It is unique to this passage, uh, or it is specific to this passage, but it's not unique to the book of Hebrews. The death of Christ, his blood forms the foundation of Christian hope. And so we just can step back and say without the blood of Christ, there is no Christian faith. If your Christianity doesn't have a place for the shed blood of Christ, you don't have Christianity. The blood forms the foundation of the gospel, This is why the cross is the boast of the Christian. This is why we sing songs and rejoice in the blood. We're going to do it in just a minute. There's no Christianity without the blood of Christ. There's no forgiveness of sins without the blood of Christ. There's no new covenant without the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ that was shed is the hope for sinners like you and like me. The blood of Christ is our only hope for redemption. Something that, that we try and say around here. And when I say we, I, I mean me and Will, we're trying to get it to catch on. But but that saying is that I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is a great savior. The greatness of our savior is seen in the fact that he died for us in order to redeem us, to save us, to deliver us. I'm a great sinner in need of salvation. I need to be rescued. I need to be redeemed. And the reality is that no one can save me except Jesus. But Jesus can because he is a great savior. And so your sin is not too much for him. However great you think you are in your sin, your Savior, Jesus, his salvation is greater. And so don't let your sin keep you from your Savior. Your sin is no match for the death and the blood of Christ. The second application point is the blood in the Bible story. The, the blood of Christ in the, the big picture of the Bible. see in this passage, but we also see in In Hebrews, Hebrews is a good example of how Christians can read the Old Testament because Hebrews makes very clear, there's a connection between the old and the new. The coming of Christ, the death of Christ is something that finds its place within the storyline of the Bible. It fits. And so this story started back in Genesis and and, and when Jesus comes, he fits within the story. It's not as though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is, is the start of a new story. It is a new story, but it's not really a new story. It's the, the start of the climax of the one story. The, the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of all that came before. And so Jesus, when, when he steps on the stage, read through the Gospels, and, and it's all over the Gospels. Jesus, as he's teaching, and as the Gospel writers are, are explaining about who he is and his identity, they connect him to people that came before. Because they know he's gonna be understood in light of what come before, came before. So he's connected to Adam. He's connected to Abraham. He's connected to Moses. He's connected to David. All these figures who came before, who played significant roles in the storyline of the Bible, they all paved the way for Jesus. And so Jesus comes and it's like, oh, that's what David was about. That's the promise to Abraham. That's why there's a second Adam. And so Jesus is understood in light of those who came before. So he's the son of David, the seed of Abraham, the second Adam, and on and on. It's all one story that climax is in the person and work of Jesus, which means that the blood of Christ, his death, is the main point of the entire Bible. And so Genesis is about Jesus. Exodus is about Jesus. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's all about Jesus. It's all leading towards him. The person and work of Christ is what it's all about. And so this helps us see that, that, that it's all about Jesus. Why would we go anywhere else save him? which leads to the final point of application, the blood and the call of God. Now, I contemplated making this final point. However, the point I think is so clear in verse 15, I, I couldn't let it go. So verse 15, there, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the, the promised eternal inheritance. So, so, so that's something we have to ask. Notice what's at stake here. Who, who? What does it mean to be called? That, that's the question that I want to ask, and it's significant because those who are called are the ones who receive the promised eternal inheritance. Which means that if I'm not called, I don't get the eternal promised inheritance. Which means we better be sure as to how this happens, how this call works, because if we're not called, we don't get the eternal inheritance. If we're not called, we're not saved. Do you see the logic there in verse 15? He, Jesus has died. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called receive this eternal inheritance. So y'all don't know what it means to be called. And, and the best place to, to help, under, help explain this is 1 Corinthians 1. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can write down verses 22 through 24. This is part of Paul's bigger argument. So in, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's like, I, I'm not wise I'm not the smartest guy, and none of you are either. We're not wealthy. We're not powerful. We're just normal old people. And Paul, his whole argument is that God uses normal old people. And he he continues in the argument there in 1 Corinthians is that just look at the gospel that we preach. It is foolishness. And so in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 1, listen to what Paul says about how the gospel is received as it's preached. He says, "For." Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we, talking about him and the apostles, we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So, so Paul's saying, the gospel that I preach, it's either a stumbling block or it's folly. Right? So Jews and Greeks, that's all there is in the world as Paul's writing, there's Jews and Gentiles. He says, when we preach this gospel, it's either received as, as a stumbling block, which means they don't, they, don't, they don't believe it. No, Jesus is not the Messiah. We're still waiting on him. No, it can't be. Or it's folly. Yeah, are you telling me that God became a man and died on a cross and then rose again three days later? That is ridiculous. That's weakness. That's foolishness. And so that's how the gospel is received, Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 24, so he says, here's how it's received among the Jews and the Greeks. But, here's a third category of person he introduces, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, third category of people made up of Jews and Greeks, those who are called, we preach Christ, who is, notice, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so there's Jews and Greeks, there's everyone. And so Paul says the whole whole world is in two categories. There's Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles, Greeks, same thing. And Paul says the gospel of Christ crucified doesn't make sense to either group of people. The gospel makes no sense. But Paul says we still preach the gospel because there's a third group. There's those who are called. And that includes some from the Jews and some of the Greeks. But when the, those who are called, when they hear the gospel, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. They believe it. They accept it. And why do they accept it? They accept it because they're called. That's the result. They hear the message of Christ crucified and to them, to those who are called, it's the message of the power of God and the wisdom of God. And those who make up this third group of those called is both Jews and Greeks. And the point Paul is making and the point I want us to understand here in the middle of Hebrews 9 is that the gospel message, the good news that Christ has died, has been buried, has resurrected, has ascended and is now interceding at the right hand of the Father as a great high priest, that message, that news That there's a mediator between God and man, that there's a mediator who offers peace and restores fellowship, that message is going to be folly, and it's going to be ridiculous, and it's going to be mocked. And it's going to be treated that way by almost everyone. That has been the case since the apostles. And that's okay, because to those who are called, it will be the message of salvation. It will make perfect sense. It'll be the power and wisdom of God. It will be like, why has anyone told me this before? That's what happens when someone is called. If you're here and you're a Christian, that, that ought to be true of you. You heard the gospel, whether it was the first time or whether it was the five thousandth time. One at some point you heard the gospel and it was different than any other time you heard it before. It it clicked, it made sense. You're, it's like your eyes were opened. And, then, and I'm not saying you knew all the answers. We still know all the answers, but, but it made sense. It's like, yes, there is a God, and he does love me, and he did send his son for me, and he did die, and he was raised, and I do have fellowship with God because of his son. It, it made sense, and that happens for everyone who is called. And so this idea of calling, right? It, it's, it's, it's known as, in some theological terms, as effectual calling. It's effectual. When God calls someone in this way, they come. The, 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 the result is part of the call. It simply means when someone becomes a Christian, if you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, and we are Christians, it is more resultant of God's action than my action. Right? No Christian should have a problem saying that. I'm a Christian today more because God called me than because I did anything. Right? When God calls, he ensures that we come. And In other words, if anyone's going to put their faith in Christ, if anyone's going to hold fast to him, if anyone's going to trust in him, that person must be called by God. God has to call. God has to effectually call. Because if God doesn't call, no one gets saved. We don't come. If God hadn't called me, I would not be where I am. And so the good news is that God calls. Now now, in, in the gospel, now, now here, here's the tension. Do we walk around with this good news of the gospel and say, okay, is God gonna call you? Is God gonna call you? I gotta make sure God's gonna call you before I share the gospel. No, we, we share indiscriminately. Whoever so, whoever so wills, come to Jesus. The, the gospel is for you. If you're sitting here today, Christ died so that you might be saved. It is an indiscriminate calling, but my call is not the same as God's call. I don't refuse to share the gospel because I don't know if God's gonna call someone or not. I share the gospel recognizing that that if if God doesn't call, no one's gonna come. And that gives great hope as we seek to evangelize and share the gospel. God has to do it. God has to give new life. God has to replace the heart of stone. God must, by the Spirit, cause that person to be born again. God must call. And so as we evangelize, that's our hope. We don't get discouraged. We don't say, well, I need to share it better. Now, I need to get my act together. No, I simply proclaim Christ crucified and say, God, call them. Call them. Do the work. I can't do it. I'm just just the messenger. You have to do something. And and what ought to amaze the, the socks off of us is that God will sometimes do it. I mean, he would use my fumbling, bumbling gospel me- message to, to save someone, really? And so we have great hope because God does call. The fact that we are here holding fast to Christ is evidence that God does call people. And so it's good news for us in our evangelism, but it's also good news for us that we are safe and secure because if, we're, if, if, if our heart, if our affections are for Jesus, we're safe, we're safe with him because we've been called affectionately by God. And so, yeah, we hold fast to him, but, but our hope ultimately is that he's holding us. And so as we, as we reach the end, as we near our last days, right, we can be confident because we're, we're his people. We've been called by him. Christ has died for us and has secured us. Well, let me pray, and then, then Andrew's going to come up and we're going we're gonna to sing um, in response. But let's pray.